Okay, what I could also do is buy internet bundles, which should be stronger than Wi-Fi. Oh wow! Um, in which case, <laughs> let me just let Africa. me just <laughs> welcome. <laughs> let me just buy some internet real quick. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to 16 Artists, a conversation series with young creators finding their way in the world. My name is Raylan Yant, and in today's episode, I speak to filmmaker Jumai Youssef and dance artist Javi Aranzales about the metaverse, Muslims in Hollywood, and the future-facing media collective Afro Bubblegum. If that sounds intriguing to you, then keep on listening. 16 Artists is presented in partnership with the Office for the Arts at Harvard. Jumai Youssef is a filmmaker and current MFA student at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. She integrates her passion for genre filmmaking, which includes sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, with her aspiration to bring the stories and characters of underrepresented minorities to the screen. Javi Aranzales is a dance artist based in Nairobi, Kenya, who works to empower at-risk youth and bridge cultural gaps through dance and education. He has previously worked with young people from slum cities in Nairobi and refugee camps in Rwanda. Ramadan Mubarak. Like Thank, today, you. Thank you. Today is the Thank beginning, you. And, and um, I really appreciate you both doing this today of all days um are you muslim now Avi? i'm muslim <gasps> mashallah really <laughs> yeah that is a thing also that has happened in my life um so last ramadan was actually my first so this is my second i'm a wow. sophomore muslim you're a baby now. muslim baby muslim oh my god <laughs> I don't know how you did this, but you got two Muslim people on the same podcast episode. Like the stars just align. This is on the first day of Ramadan. Like, wow. That's wow. actually crazy. Yeah, the stars are definitely aligned. I'm just so honored. Now the beard makes sense. Got it. Yeah, beautiful beard. Thank you. Beautiful look. What are you eating? We have some pilau, which is like a rice dish with some avocado, some meat. Jumai, do you know pilau? Is there wait, Jumai, you're Nigerian, right? Yeah. So we are on the you know opposite sides of the continent. You know. <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe like it's like it's like a jollof kind of situation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't look like jollof, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> like no, don't do like not that. go for sure. jollof. <laughs> it's like colored <laughs> rice. Is that not jollof? No. Is that, you know what? Let's not get into an argument on this podcast. <laughs> this took a left turn. Oh real my quick. god! The cultural alignment and then the cultural divergence. <laughs> like, it's just like so. Fast. so no, quick. that's very that's fast. <laughs> that's the that's the beauty of it. We also, um, Jumai, what is your background? My question for you. It is. And is this from, your artwork? No, I wish it was. It's from the show Shira on Netflix, an animated show. Because of COVID, I actually taught myself how to animate. Whoa. Uh, which, yeah, big, <laughs> big chain. Wow. Of 
right now next to me, I have a huge, I have a PC because I went all in <laughs> on like the wow. technology and all of that. Um, yeah. So I've been doing some animation and like 3D design on my own, like myself. And I also mm. produced, I also produced a couple of animated films, one of which uh, won a student academy award, which is like very, very cool. Hello. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Thank didn't you. Thank you. That. Didn't, that didn't come up in <laughs> my research. That's incredible. Yeah. It was in the like alternative experimental category. And the film, the filmmaker is amazing. Her name is Curry. She's a, a child. She's a Chinese international student. And the film was live action and 3D animation like together. Wow. So it was just like a super cool experience. And I definitely learned a lot from it. What's wow, the title cool. of this project? Simulacra. Simulacra. Amazing. I was looking at, um, I think, is it Hearts Ease? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the first animated film that I animated, you know. It's amazing. Yes, research. <laughs> yes, hello. <laughs> Putting that degree to use. Because <laughs> it's not being used anyway. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can talk about real that. Question, real question, real no. question. We have three artists on the podcast who studied government, neurobiology, and environmental science of public policy. <laughs> Shout out. That's the liberal arts education That's right there. The arts liberal yes. Arts. For sure. For sure. <laughs> Do you want to talk a bit about what that piece was about and the inspiration for it? Yeah, so Heartseize was actually made during a competition. It was called the Real Time Shorts Challenge. It was a 30-day competition um, run by this guy named John McInnes. And me and my classmate and creative partner and everything, Alexa, uh, we decided to work together on this film. So we co-directed it. And it was basically like, okay, this is how we're gonna teach ourselves how to use this software. Um, because we made that film using Unreal Engine, which is made by Epic Games, the people who make Fortnite. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, you, I mean, you use Unreal Engine to make video games, but it's kind of gotten a lot of press and stuff because things like The Mandalorian um, mm -hmm. use it for virtual production, which is basically when you take like green screens, instead of using green screen, you use LED walls. And so mm. you can pull up an environment in this video game engine and kind of shoot everything together in camera, which mm. is just really cool. And especially with COVID where you can't, maybe you don't have the ability to go on location, you could do something like this instead. So a lot of like filmmakers have been trying to learn it now. So when Unreal Engine 5 comes out, like we are prepared to harness all this power basically. So, um, mm -hmm. Jumai, so you, you also play video games, right? I do, but so, so I'm a full, I'm a full on nerd, but video gaming Beautiful. is like my lowest power, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like in terms of my nerdiness. <laughs> so like I play video games, but I'm not like the best at them. And I don't like play them as much. Okay. As, well, <laughs> I'm curious yeah. about since, since, you know, you're using, you, you're using this software, you're experimenting with animation. Where do you see the relationship between film and video games going? Well, I mean, I am very, I'm very much like a, I guess a futurist, they might call it. So I'm all about 
the metaverse and like VR and AR and basically that we might reach a point where like film will be as interactive as video games and video games are already basically as cinematic as big blockbuster films, right? Yeah, so I definitely see a future where these things are really um, kind of becoming very similar, almost indistinguishable. The technology is becoming almost as affordable as like when people say, oh, go shoot a film on your iPhone. Like animation is kind of going on that trajectory because Unreal Engine is a free software. Um, And another software I use to create characters called Daz is also free. So in some ways, me learning how to animate was cheaper than me going out and trying to make like a super um, high production value film on my own. While we're on the topic of the metaverse, I'm curious about how your relationship to social media has evolved and where maybe where you see that going. Especially as a Latino in East Africa, there's a lot of stuff that you just, like a lot of barriers that I'm kind of jumping through daily, which is one of the things that I love. And going back to that thing of, are we using our degrees? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's something my family asks me. All, they're like, okay, so like, because I was at Microsoft for a while where I was doing marketing before moving to Nairobi. And that was that's a little bit more in line of what you think of outside of Harvard. You're like, okay, you're at a tech company. Great. You have a marketing exactly. position. Great. So, <laughs> and so I, it was a two-year program, but I left after one year because I was like, no, I want to be in Nairobi. Like, this is where I want to be because I had done an internship here before going to Microsoft. And so in the whole content creation thing, like it's, there's a whole relationship with especially comments and just how to maintain your mental health and how to just kind of do things like, you know, you're putting yourself out there, you're putting your message out there, but of course you're going to face all these different barriers. So yeah, it's, that's a whole, whole conversation, but it's, as long as you're doing it positively and like, you know how to stay balanced, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Do you feel like your government degree is helping you be diplomatic and strategic? Thank you. So (laughs) Well, so that's the thing, like every, I I would say every day I do international relations because in a way this is okay. There is an embassy, of course, of the U S of Colombia here in Nairobi. I, in terms of those two identities, I am Colombian. I'm born in Colombia, but I, through naturalization became an American citizen, but I feel some type of way about claiming to be American in Nairobi. Just because being American is seen as a whole different thing. And so I would say 99.9% of the time when I'm talking about myself and my background, yes, I mentioned like I I studied in the US, but it's mostly like I am a Colombian Latino who is coming here to Nairobi. Just because it's the narrative is very different if you claim to be American. It's every single day I do international relations. And so that I remind myself like, okay, your degree, you are using it because I mean, I speak Swahili every single day. I'm studying Somali, which is the language of Somalia. So it's, I am still embedded, in, even if it's on a whole different level of dancing and making funny videos to kind of bridge these cultural gaps. Every single day, I'm kind of in my own little way. I am like a Colombian ambassador to East Africa, kind of. Definitely that, you know, I think in a very real way, not, not just to you. I think that's one of the big lessons that we're learning in this decade with the way 
digitalization has changed global cultural flows that like international relations as thought of through a policy framework, like we're realizing is only one layer <laughs> and mm -hmm. the way people's perceptions are shaped about other countries and other communities, it often happens through channels like social media and it happens through individual interactions. So that work that you're doing is very, very real work helping to bridge those gaps. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm gonna attempt to connect this to the metaverse. So I something I've been reflecting on is I think we are exiting the information age and entering the attention age. So the main currency that matters now is not information because everyone can have access to information, it's attention. So how do you cut through the noise of all the, the information that the internet provides and how do you hold people's attention? And this has very dangerous consequences. Like if you look at the Trump, Trump's presidency, I think so much of that had to do with his ability to hold people's attention. And what's rewarded on these platforms is extremism in any sort of way, whether that's just having a very fiery opinion about something versus having a nuanced and layered one, the fiery one is going to get get upped. And so it's changing how we how we relate to each other. But I think what happens for the individual is we have to end up navigating all of these pulling, these pressures and these pulls on our attention. So Jumai, in your case, like deciding to hold off from, from watching TikTok and sort of maybe keep some of your own sanity and, and perspective. Yeah. Um, or whether that's, that's Javi, like dancing between these different cultural perceptions to create, create connections um, on that communal level, on that cultural level, but then maybe also on that individual level. In college, a big thing that I was exploring was dance as a form of, and it's so, I'm literally, you know, this is, and this is beautiful. I love that this is happening. This used to be a tagline that was like, on just in my head the whole time and now I, i've even forgotten the tagline because i haven't thought about it in so long that is good. um that is so it's cool. like dance as social change i think that's what it was yes. <laughs> i love that that happened but that's what I, I was so in that bubble of okay dance as a form of going into an impoverished community whether it's in my own country of colombia or in miami like just anywhere in the Philippines, we traveled to, um, we even taught in China. Like there was a lot of different projects that I did in college. That's something that I'm, I was very naturally passionate about. And so that brought me to Nairobi actually for the first time. So there was an organization that went viral because they were teaching ballet in the slums of, like the slum cities of Nairobi. There's two in particular, Kibera and Madare. Those are their names. So this organization was doing more than just dance. But the girls in tutus and point shoes and the guys walking into ballet class, that's what made the headlines. When I saw that, actually, I was on my gap year, my gap semester in Colombia in 2014. So I saw that and I was like, I want to go there. Started studying Swahili and so eventually came here, loved it. That was a summer internship. But then I had this contract at Microsoft. So then I was at this crossroads of, okay. Go to Microsoft. I had interned at Google the summer before, so I kind of, but I had never done anything really. Everything in my path was kind of nonprofit and government related. So I was thinking, okay, I know what Nairobi holds for me. I know what this organization feels like. I know what the city feels like, but I know nothing about Seattle and nothing about marketing 
at Microsoft. And so for me, it was the new thing. Let me go do that thing that I haven't done because I don't know what that's going to hold. I know what this holds and I know that I love this, but I might also love that. So I did that. But in the process of being a product marketing manager at Microsoft, had an amazing, amazing year. The people, the program, what I was doing, the travel, like everything was really amazing. But I kept thinking Nairobi, dance, ballet, Nairobi, content, African music. And in the back of my head, I was I was in this beautiful apartment in Seattle and I loved what I was doing. I wasn't discontent, but there was this thing playing over and over. Tried to make like Microsoft in Nairobi happen, but I couldn't get a position here. So I was like, okay, that's okay. Let me just pack up my two, three suitcases and let me just move to Nairobi full time. I first came as a dance in the in a dance context so i was teaching dance at a school here in nairobi i was dancing with a professional ballet company in nairobi so everything dance at the same time i was keeping up with my content creation but just because of the way life works it didn't work out at any of those schools so like i right now i can't even go back to those schools because so many things just happened okay um, <laughs> so it's like it's crazy because it's like you think about bridges and you're like the bridges that I that are probably the hardest for me to burn, which are like anything dance or ballet related, are 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 now like crumbled. Oh, no. <laughs> well, it just means you're building bridges in unexpected places then. Exactly. It just all goes back to like doors have to close for you to find exactly what door you need to go through. And for me, that was a lot of creating content. And so now that's what I kind of do full time. What I try to do through my platforms is break down any barriers that people try to put up between people, whether that's religious, whether that's cultural, language, identity, like there's all these bubbles that I exist in that somebody might look at me and say, oh, but first of all, being Latino is something that might not even, that concept doesn't even exist in many places of Africa. Like, it's like you're either black, white, or like Asian. So people look at me and they're like, and you are like, are you like Asian or like Arab? Like, we don't know what you are. Wow. <laughs> and also religious, like as a convert slash revert to Islam, like I, I think about these things daily of, okay, I'm a practicing Muslim. My family, nobody in my family is Muslim. So it's creating all these bridges between all these different things. So that's what I do. <laughs> Long story short. Beautiful. Amazing. <laughs> and I would love to hear maybe just a little bit more about how spirituality connects with your creative practice? Okay, spirituality is everything. My religion is everything to me, alhamdulillah. Like, it's just something where growing up like Christian Catholic, like we grew up with God as a figure in our lives. And that was always something that's, I even found like going through, so I was in Miami over winter break and I was cleaning out some of my things and I found my high school graduation cap and I had, after graduation, I wrote on this cap, like this, like gratitude letter to like myself and God. And it, but it was very much addressed to God, like, thank you, God, for all these opportunities and the doors you've opened. So it's, it's always been a big part of my life, but just now it's like, how do you choose to express that now? Like, how does it connect to creativity? For me, one thing is in a way, Islam has allowed me to connect more on a cultural level where if somebody sees me. As just walking around in Nairobi, they'll be like, okay, foreigner. But then the moment I open my mouth and speak Swahili, that lessens. Now, the moment I'm walking around like in a kanzu, like the Muslim, like thobe thing, I immediately blur all those barriers. And people now 
even though of my, even my skin color, people say, oh, he's just from the coast of Kenya. Like he's like Arab or something. Wow. And so in a way, it's it has allowed me to feel more included and feel more because it's not about color anymore or about like where you're from. Like through this religion, like you're all part of one community. So at least for me, it's it's allowed me to connect with people on a more personal level, whether that's personal or professional or creative, because now it's, it's something that just makes you one. I just want to say that your story and your convert revert story and everything is so inspiring. And this just, oh, it's, that's so amazing. That's so amazing to hear. And I guess it, it's even making me think about like how Islam has influenced me in my creative path as well. Um, cause well, cause one thing is I, for some reason, I feel like the Islamic community has always been the most supportive in terms of financially in my life. Like, for example, I didn't, you know, get scholarships from the university when I was going to grad school, but the one place that gave me a scholarship was the Islamic scholarship fund, um, which has like specific like division for people who are going into film. So I was like, wow, there are people who like want more Muslims to be in filmmaking. You know what I mean? And that was a really inspiring thing just when I was started going to film school. And now I have this amazing mentor through ISF, as it's called. And I'm like slowly starting to, you know, meet more Muslim people like in Hollywood, in entertainment. And most the most recent thing um, that came out of all of that was there's a fellowship that I just got accepted into that is specifically for Black Muslim like television writers. So that was really cool because I was like, first of all, how many? Thank you, thank you. I was like, how many people are applying to this? I was like, <laughs> honestly, I was the most excited to potentially meet other Black Muslims who wow. are interested in Hollywood. That's so, amazing, yeah. actually. Like that's so beautifully niche. I know. I yeah. And it was a collaboration. It's a collaboration between MPAC, which is a Muslim organization, and then the Black House, which is a Black organization. And I just like love that they're, you know, fostering this collaboration. And, you know, it's just it's just interesting when you live in like an intersection, intersectionality, I guess, sort of yeah. way, like like you do. It's it's so great to meet people who like recognize like all parts of your identity. You know what I mean? So yeah, shout out to the Muslim creatives out here. <laughs> shout out to the Muslim creatives. And what you're talking about, that that multiplicity of identity, I think something all three of us have have dealt with on some level and that so many people from our generation have dealt with because we're told to have one identity. You know, we're told, like, fi- you know, find out who you are and fit it all into one identity. (laughs) I think so much of our stress, so much of our identity crisis comes from the fact that we're trying to shoehorn multiplicity into one identity. And maybe we're also entering the age, we're exiting the age of individuality (laughs) and entering the age of multiplicity. Yes. Get this man a medium article. Oh my God. I want to dig in a little bit more um, with Jumai, with your filmmaking, because I was, I was watching your director's reel and there's so much beautiful film. And I felt like something that was translating for me um, across these different clips was 
and emotional clarity that I really appreciated. Um, but I wanted to hear from you if there's anything that you've been discovering as maybe a, a through line or a core value that's emerging across your different projects. Yeah, that's a great question because I should know the answer to this. So if you have insight, definitely let me know. <laughs> but no, no, no. But I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, well, one thing that has, you know, kind of, I guess, organized my filmmaking is the fact that I consider myself a genre filmmaker, which means that I'm into fantasy, sci-fi, horror. And I guess you could include animation in that since I feel like people almost consider that its own genre. So that those are the type of stories that I'm drawn to and really almost exclusively tell. And even if the story isn't in that genre, I feel like sometimes like I add a thriller aspect or like a horror aspect, like in the visuals or something like that. So I basically, I just love the fact that with storytelling, you can kind of create your a whole new world. You know what I mean? reminds me of like suburban younger Jemai who would just like read Harry Potter and fantasy books and like pretend I like lived on like a different plane of reality. <laughs> so just trying to make that now in filmmaking. Um, but and another like, I guess through line is that, you know, I like to tell stories that are about people of color and minorities especially Black women, as I slowly realized that I almost exclusively had Black female protagonists. And I actually had to force myself to expand to, you know, prove that I can work with like a white male actor, for example. Um, mm -hmm. But that's definitely something that I also focus on. And I just think it's really important to put like Black people and other people of color into these genres that I mentioned, because you don't really see that a lot, right? And, and I mean, I don't know if you've you've probably heard the term Afrofuturism, especially mm -hmm. with when Black Panther came out. And mm -hmm. I guess that is a word you could use to describe the type of films that I like to make. Afrofuturism is interesting because I feel like at a basic level, it's just like we, we are telling these speculative stories to kind of prove that Black people will exist in the future. You know what I mean? And it's wow. like... It, if you don't see, you know, different types of people in these like futuristic stories, how do you even like imagine to like put yourself there, right? Like how do you imagine yourself as somebody who can be in space, who can live on Mars, that kind of thing. So I feel like in a, in a nutshell, or like that's like the ultimate thing I'm kind of going towards. And even like the black Muslim, like television pilot that I wrote is a very like Afrofuturistic space very Sailor Mooney type story that features like a black Muslim, like teenage girl. So it's like, you know, another example of just trying to put people into these genres that we don't usually see there. But yeah, I just ramble. I don't know if that answered the question That's at all. Beautiful. Those things. <laughs> That's so inspiring. That's, and I have one, I have one thing to add to that real quick. So I think especially in the context of whether it's like the African context or the people of color context, there's this idea of social change. Like, oh, let me make a person of color film and it's all about social change. It's all about like an impoverished community. And there's a beautiful genre, but it's kind of an idea that was born here in Nairobi that's called Afro Bubblegum. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a group of creatives and they went on to do festivals, but their whole thing is 
creating black slash people of color art for the joy of the art. Like we're not going to have a social message. Like we're not going to talk about, you know, we're going to help build this community up. Like, no, this is going to be a whole movie, a whole festival, all about black joy, all about African joy, all about people of color joy. Like there, there has to be no motive to us creating art as people of color that always has to draw back to social change or to development. Like we can just create art for the sake of art and for the enjoyment of it, which is so beautiful because it doesn't always have to tie back to like, oh, if I'm going to make a film, let me tie in some deep social issue. Although, of course, art is incredibly powerful to portray social messages. Mm -hmm. But there's also something to be said for the freedom of it doesn't always have to be tied to a social message because we exist as we are without tying to any other social messaging just for the joy of our existence. So anybody listening to this, like Afro bubblegum is a beautiful, just like for the joy of art. Here's a clip from Afro Bubblegum co-founder Wanuri Kahu's 2017 TED Talk, Fun, Fierce, and Fantastical African Art. So when I started to write my own science fiction and fantasy, I was surprised that it was considered un-African. So naturally I asked, what is African? And this is what I know so far. Africa is important. Africa is the future. It is, though. And Africa is a serious place where only serious things happen. So when I present my work, somewhere, somewhere will always ask, what's so important about it? How does it deal with real African issues like war, poverty, devastation, or AIDS? And it doesn't. My work is about narrow B-pop bands that want to go to space, or about seven-foot-tall robots that fall in love. It's nothing incredibly important. It's just fun, fierce, and frivolous. As frivolous as bubblegum. Afro bubblegum. I definitely struggled with that as a as a young artist, even when I remember like freshman year, just like starting to do theater and joining black cast and things like that, because I was just this huge like nerd, as I mentioned, <laughs> and especially with sci-fi and things like that. And I was mm. like, well, but these are the stories I want to tell. And I was like, but people look at me and see a black person. So they're like, you need to have some type of deeper message. And at first I really tried to resist that. And I was like, no, like, I don't want to do what you guys say. Like, I just want to make a cool story about like a robot. (laughs) But I kind of realized that just the fact of seeing or putting or creating characters that are of different backgrounds and putting them in these genres, even that is like a social justice or social change thing within itself. And that kind of, I think realizing that really helped me as an artist. And as I grew, you know, my favorite film is Pan's Labyrinth, which I watched in like Spanish class in high school. So shout out to that professor. (laughs) But it was just so crazy to me how you could combine like something that looks like a fairy tale with like a war. You know what I mean? And that's the type of stuff that I think really inspires me. It's like, okay, let's make this cool, like 
big budget, big genre movie, but then you can kind of slip in that social justice that social change, that message, that like bitter pill in it mm-hmm. when people, yeah, when people aren't expecting it. So that's kind of like the method I take, I feel like when it comes to being a Black creative and using art in a social, as a method for social change. I mean, in Afro Bubblegum, the radical joy of it, the radical just being of it. And also Jumai used talking about representation itself being a form of social change, creating a vision so people can see themselves reflected in the culture and in the future. It's it's like, it's almost about, it, it, rather than pushing the existing paradigm in a direction, it's just creating a center of gravity somewhere else that then mm. draws people over or expands expands that world a bit and it's like um change through being instead of change through doing this concludes part one of this episode and part two is already up if you want to keep listening you can learn more about Jumai Youssef and Javi Aranzales at 16artists.com. Thank you to the Office for the Arts and the Harvard Alumni Association for supporting this podcast. I'd love to hear your reactions to this podcast, so feel free to get in touch with me directly on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn at R-E-Y-L-X-N. My name is Raylan Yant. Thanks for listening to 16 Artists. <laughs>